I'd like you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, It is the easiest thing in the world to give high marks when grading your own paper. Teachers here, wouldn't your students just love it if if you let them grade their own paper? Don't we all like to grade our own paper? Wouldn't we all like to do that? We were reminded, I think, uh, of this challenging truth by the United States Supreme Court's decision recently declaring gay marriage legal. There are many who are now declaring and, and celebrating that this is a wonderful thing, that the Supreme Court has affirmed their lifestyle And we understand this, that God's Word says that that is in complete opposition to what God's design is and His intent is for men and women in marriage. In essence, we are grading grading our own paper as a nation of uh, people who are being led in this way by the Supreme Court's decision. But as believers, we need to make sure that we are led by God's Word. We are not allowed to grade our own paper, are we? We all like to be affirmed in our sinful choices, aren't we? Aren't we, aren't we all looking to be affirmed in our sinful choices? I mean, we, we are tempted to sin, and when we choose to sin, we'd like someone to come along and say, it's okay, it's all right, that's not sin. We all want to grade our own paper that way, but when our choices are based on false promises, and that's what sin is, it's a false promise, when we are led to sin, when we are tempted to sin and we give in to that temptation, those, those promises that entice us are false promises. And when our choices are based on false promises, and that's, that's true of the promise of fulfillment in gay marriage, that is a false promise. There will not be fulfillment. That's why as a church we need to stand on God's promises, God's truth, so that we are here when people realize that those are empty promises, the results in those false promises will always be less than satisfying. Many proponents of same-sex marriage have said, just let us marry who we want and we'll be happy and we'll leave you alone. But what God has called sin never works that way. This is true for each of us. It's true for every person in this room. Just think of the sins that you must fight in your own life. Just think of the temptations that you must resist in your own life. They call out to you promising joy, promising satisfaction and contentment if you will just treat yourself. But sin never satisfies. And this is one reason God's truth will always stand the test of time. It's one of the reasons we we have that passage from Proverbs this month to remind us of where we should fix our attention on God's Word. Only God and His truth believed and obeyed can truly satisfy. And we've been seeing why this is true in the book of Hebrews. Again and again, we've been seeing why this is true. The promise of sin to satisfy the lusts of the flesh cannot produce true satisfaction. But God's promises, God's promises of forgiveness of sins and God's promise of joy 
and rest and peace because our sins have been forgiven and our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's promises, even in the midst of difficulty, will always fulfill. And this is true because God's promises are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the guarantor of God's promises, as we heard back in chapter 7 and verse 22. Now, our last time here in Hebrews 8, two weeks ago, we saw in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus is better than all because He is the true priest. He is the true priest ministering in the true temple, the true tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle. And He is ministering on behalf of all who trust in Him. Now what we're learning from Hebrews chapter 8 is that in Christ, not only do we have a great high priest, not only do believers have a a go-between to God, Jesus is the believer's mediator. He is the go-between to God on our behalf for all who trust in Him. As 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Not, not only is He our mediator, not only is He our go-between, but He is also the keeper of the better covenant which is based on better promises. Now, as we look at the text of Hebrews 8 this morning, and we're going to go to verse 6. We're going to start there in verse 6 and read to the end of the chapter. As we look at this text of Hebrews 8 from verses 6-13 through 13 together, what I want you to look for are those better promises. What I want you to pay attention to and look for are those better promises. There are three that are the highlight of this passage, which emphasizes, once again, why Jesus is better than all. So let's look for those better promises and pay attention as I read. Look at the text of God's Word together. Hebrews 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. 
and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now what we're seeing here is that Jesus ministers by a better covenant which is based on better promises. Now first let's consider why the new covenant is a better covenant. Then we're going to consider the better promises. We'll look at those better promises in just a moment. But first, understand this. Let's think about why is the new covenant a better covenant? Why is the new covenant better than the old covenant? First, I want you to note that the old covenant was never referred to as eternal. And verse 13 makes that idea clear. Look at verse 13 again when it says, "...in speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete." And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it was never given as an everlasting covenant. Note also, as we see in verse 7, that it was not without fault. For if that first covenant, says verse 7, had been faultless, it's not without fault. If it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now what was the fault? We see it pointed to in verses 8 and 9. The people didn't obey God's commands. The people didn't obey it. They didn't obey God. They said they would obey God. They said they would obey all that He told them. But we know the people of Israel did not obey God, don't we? We know it from the Old Testament. Go to Exodus 19. You can keep your finger here in Hebrews 8. Go to Exodus 19 in the Old Testament. Second book of the Bible. You can see their promise to obey God in Exodus 19 where it says, beginning in verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, On that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And verse 2 says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine, and you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And verse 7 says, So Moses came and called the leaders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And pay attention closely to verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. This was their solemn promise. They identified with what God had told Moses. Look how I bore you on eagles' wings. Look how I brought you out of Egypt. Look how I provided for you. And they said, yes. 
All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken. Yes, Lord, all that you have said, we're going to do that. This was their solemn promise to obey God. But here in Hebrews 8, go back to Hebrews 8 and look at verses 8 and 9 again, because they did not obey God. Because they did not obey God. It says in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 8, for He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand bore them on eagles' wings, took them by the hand. You see that imagery of how God provided and cared for them. I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they, and note this, for they did not continue in My covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now that is serious. When God's Word says, so I showed no concern for them, that ought to make us sit up and pay attention. It's like when one of the kids is being punished, all the other kids are like, "Uh uh-oh, we better behave too, right? Listen, the fault of the Old Covenant wasn't a fault with God. The weakness of the Old Covenant wasn't a weakness with God. It was a fault, it was a weakness with the people. The covenant promises that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai were conditional. Note that. We heard it in Exodus. If you will, then I, says God. They were conditional. The old covenant promises were conditioned on the people's obedience. God had miraculously delivered Israel from captivity in Egypt, and then God met Moses on Mount Sinai telling him all that he should go and tell the people. He commanded them, this is what you go and tell the people. And the people made a solemn promise. They made a solemn promise to obey God's commands, but because the people of Israel did not keep the promises of their forefathers, withdrawing from God, withdrawing themselves from God's blessings, God withdrew His blessings from them. And that's what we see there at the end of verse 9 when it says, For they did not continue in My covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. There's a solemn reminder here for all of us that still holds true today. Although there is a new covenant for which we praise God, and we're going to see these wonderful promises that God makes with those who trust in Jesus Christ, Although there is a new covenant which we are seeing here, this fundamental truth remains. We see it again and again in God's Word. God will not bless disobedience. God will not bless people. God will not bless churches. God will not bless nations who turn their back on Him 
And that truth should cause us to grieve for the world that we live in that is rejecting God and His good commands and promises from His Word. But that fundamental truth should also cause us to commit ourselves to honoring God with our own lives. This should sober us and make serious the importance of our own commitment and devotion and dedication to honoring God with our own lives. Committing ourselves to honor God because we can have no assurance of God's blessing if we distance ourselves from God by our disobedience. You see, God had given His laws to the children of Israel to help them grow. It was like He was leading them by the hand, says verse 9. But in the New Covenant, instead of giving laws to obey, instead of leading believers by the hand, so to speak, God gives believers in Christ His Son. He gives us His Son. Instead of commands, He gives Christ. And what makes the new covenant better is seen in the promises on which it is based. And while the old covenant was based on a condition, the new covenant is based on Christ, who is the guarantor, the keeper of God's new covenant made with all who trust in His Son. This new covenant is unconditional for all who trust in Christ, because these promises are based on Christ and on His finished work. So let's note the promises. Let's think about the promises which Jesus fulfills for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the promise of an inner understanding and knowledge of God that leads to God-honoring desires and nations is given here. says verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. We need to understand this. This is a, this is a promise of an inner understanding and knowledge of God that leads to God-honoring desires and actions for all who trust in Christ, for all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His finished work for their sins. You see, the law made clear God's righteous and holy standard, and it still does. Just think of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments still make clear for us, do they not, what God's holy and righteous standard is? But before the gospel, there was no way to accomplish true heart change. One could even try to keep some of God's laws without even believing in God. But under the new covenant, a person who repents of sin, and this is a wonderful work of God's grace, under the new covenant, a person who repents of sin, and trusts in Jesus Christ receives a new nature. That person receives a new nature, and with the new nature comes the desire to change and the power to change. And just to be clear, that power to change is God's power. 
We got to praise God for that. This isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. That we, that we make ourselves better people. God moves in to the heart and life of the believer and brings about not only a desire for change, but the power for change in the believer's life. Second Peter chapter one. Listen to these verses, verses three and four from Second Peter one. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So the new nature, which is a gift to all believers from God, the new nature, the believer in Jesus receives, it is, it is a divine nature. It is the divine nature. It is God's nature at work within, giving the desire to change and the, the ability to change. And I think we should remember this as we look at our own lives and we consider the sins we're still fighting, the temptations to sin we're still fighting. We don't become more righteous in God's sight by becoming law keepers. We need to be careful about this in our own lives that we don't say to ourselves, if I just do these three things, if I just don't do this and I do do that and I don't do this and I do do that or whatever it is, we're so prone to be list makers, aren't we? We don't become more righteous in God's sight by becoming list keepers and law keepers. But we are righteous in God's sight because of the finished work of Christ. We put our faith in Christ and God looks at us as righteous just as if we had never sinned because of His Son, because of His Son's sacrifice, and because of Christ's victory over sin and death. God calls us to live by the power of the Spirit working within, yielding ourselves to the working of the Spirit within, the divine nature, the new nature, as He helps us to become the people He desires, people who are growing by the strength of the Spirit day by day, leaning on Christ and His finished work. People who are growing in strength by the Word of God at work in them as, as we learn to put off the old nature and put on the new nature. We are called to do this. We are given a new nature, but we are also called to put it on. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We're given this gift of of the divine nature, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but we are also supposed to take action. As Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what we are in Christ. This is what we are called to be in Christ. And then in verse 22 in Ephesians 4, it says we're to seek to put off 
the old nature which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We're to put on. We're to put on the righteousness of Christ, and yet we are given the righteousness of Christ. That's an incredible tension there, I think. We, we, we look at these things and we say, how can this be that, that we are given a new nature and yet we're to put on the new nature? It's a, it's a work of God. And, and some of these things are mysteries that I don't pretend to understand myself, but I know them to be true. And I believe that you will know them to be true. If you put yourself in God's Word and put His Word in you, and you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His finished work, God reveals Himself to you. God reveals Himself to your heart. So the new nature of the believer that we receive is the divine nature. It's God's nature at work within, giving the desire to change and the ability to change. So we should also remember this as we pray for unbelievers, as we pray for our nation, as we pray for our neighbors. We should remember this as we pray for unbelievers and seek to witness to them all around us who need Christ. We should not be surprised when the world rejoices in the corruption that is brought on by unrestrained, deceitful desires. We should not expect for people who are blinded by sin to act like believers. But we should also remember that God has us here as His people to be messengers of light. We have the truth. We have the truth of God's Word. And in this world that is being deceived by sin's deception and the darkness of sin, when people hit rock bottom to find that all the deception of sin, those were empty promises, we are here to offer them the wisdom of God's Word, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of truth. This is also a good reminder to us to be people who read God's Word. Who read God's Word for ourselves, putting it into our own hearts and minds, hiding it in our own hearts and minds, using it to to shape our own lives and attitudes and actions by God's Word. Note promise number two. Promise number two, a personal relationship with God. We can see it in verse 11. Note the word all. Look at verse 11 again. For they shall all know me. I call this a personal relationship with God. That is, all who trust in Christ have God's promise kept in Christ that they will have an inner intuitive knowledge of God. This is why we can look at some of the tensions in Scripture and we say we don't, we don't understand how this works, but we know that it does. Because if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, God reveals Himself to you. He gives you a personal relationship with Him. He gives you an inner intuitive knowledge of God. Of this, Homer Kent writes, because many under the old covenant had no personal experience of God as far as spiritual knowledge was concerned, and the revelation itself was not complete, there was constant need for the priests and prophets 
to make known the latest word from God. They did this by teaching and writing, and the knowledge of God was spread by this means as one man told another. In the new covenant, the knowledge of God will be planted in the heart of believers by God Himself. Only true believers participate in the new covenant. And the indwelling Holy Spirit will provide an intuitive knowledge of God to every believer without exception. And the only way anyone can have that inner knowledge of God is through faith in God's Son. And that is why we can look at unbelievers and marvel sometimes at unbelief. How can they not believe in the God who created this universe that we enjoy, we say? And yet Satan, we know, is actively blinding the, the eyes, the hearts, the minds of unbelievers to see, keep them from seeing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the only way anyone can have that inner knowledge of God is through faith in God's Son. And though we are sinners, and the law could only reveal and not forgive sin by God's grace, through Christ, God forgives our sin. Just as we see next, He gives this third promise, complete forgiveness of sins. Promise number three, complete forgiveness of sins. Note verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's complete forgiveness of sins. The old covenant was only a shadow of the new covenant. The old covenant was unable to accomplish the full forgiveness of sins. But under the new covenant, there is complete forgiveness of sins. And the idea behind the word new, the word new here is not as in replacement. It's not as in a replacement for, but new in quality, which is the promise of complete forgiveness of sins. You see, for all who trust in His Son, God chooses to never remember their sins. Just think of that. It was in Hebrews 5.9 that we learned that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. And what we're seeing here in verse 12 is that through Jesus, God forgives our sins, choosing to never hold our sins against us. Praise God. I want you to just understand this, though. This does not mean that God can't remember. This isn't that God, God can't remember. It's that He, whoops, I forgot all about them, and I can't remember them. That's not our God. That's not the one true God. It's even better than that, though. It's not like God forgot, He slipped His mind, and He's totally forgotten about them. It's far better than that. Because though God can't forget anything, he chooses to forget this. He chooses not to remember this, that we're sinners. If we've confessed our sins, if we've repented of sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, God says, I won't remember your sins anymore because Jesus paid for those. 
my son paid for those. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price once for all for your sins. Jesus is the guarantor of our eternal salvation. And God chooses to not remember our sins anymore. I think there's a reminder here for us that we ought to be people like that. We ought to seek to be. As those who have been forgiven, if that's true of you, if you've been forgiven by God your sins, you also ought to learn to be forgiving of others. We ought to be willing to forgive as God forgives. Certainly, we can't forget someone else's sin against us. Often we say, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Well, that's true. You won't forget. You can't forget. But we can forgive. We can choose to forgive, and we can choose to never hold that person's sin that was against us against them. That is how God treats us. Believers in Jesus Christ, ought to be the most forgiving people on earth because we have been forgiven our sins and they are not being held against us because they were held against Christ, our sinless Savior, the guarantor of our eternal salvation. That is how God treats us, praise God. And praise God for a better covenant and the better promises kept by the one who is better than all, the Lord Jesus Christ.